A festival from 6 until 9 showcases all performances and artwork open for all to attend. Again, that's the Art-a-thon with Impact on Saturday, November 3rd from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Agnes Flanagan Chapel at Lewis and Clark College, 0615 Southwest Palatine Hill Road in Portland. More information may be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. Good evening. Hello. Welcome to KBOO's Poetry and Everything. I'm Judith Arcana, your host. KBOO Community Radio is in Portland, Oregon, USA. And you, you could be anywhere, anywhere on this planet. Tokyo, Mumbai, Amsterdam, Johannesburg, Bogota, listening listening with us. Each month we have guests who are poets, poets from nearby and far away, and every now and then folks who are not poets, but all of us reading and talking about poetry and everything. We generally open with the host, me, reading one of my own poems. Then the guest and I read work by other poets. Then more things happen. Okay, this evening, I'm going to read because I am influenced by this evening's guest and her new book. Um, I began thinking about making people motherhood concerns (laughs) because of Alicia Jo Rabins. So I decided to read this one of mine. It's called Anecdotal Evidence of the Effects of Women's Liberation on Male Children. We are looking out the windows at the city, the mountain. We see the sky all over us. He says, Ma, your apartment is surrounded by parking lots. Then my son, who lives in L.A., a place where no one stops driving long enough to park, opens his silver laptop to show me an experiment in cyber magic. As he clicks his way there, I remember him saying, I know I've been your experiment. The man from Los Angeles didn't know yet. We're all experiments. Everybody's looking for results, conclusions. Everybody's guessing. Everybody's testing, testing, one, two, testing. Nobody ever knows how it'll come out. I made him out of what I had to work with. Then, malts, ribs, pizza, the occasional apple, maybe coleslaw with carrots, I was cooking him for nine months, the year a clockwork orange was new, and people started using the word sexism. When he was done, we went to school, changing our major, biology to sociology. When my son goes to movies, sits in the dark with Americans, watching men hurt women, he gets sick. He wants to leave when men hit women. He says pushing out through glass doors into California sunshine. This is my mother's fault. She raised me so I can't stand this. Can't just sit there like a normal person. All right. That's the, uh, the opener from the host. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you all our guest for this evening, Alicia Jo Rabins, a poet, musician, 
and teacher of Torah. She is the author of Divinity School, which was chosen by C.D. Wright for the American Poetry Review Honickman First Book Prize in 2015, and Fruit Geode, just out from Augury Books. Rabin's created and performed Girls in Trouble, an indie folk song cycle about women in the Torah, and a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, a one-woman show about finance and spirituality, which was the first time that I heard of you. I was in your audience for oh, those yes. performances. Oh. Yes. Um, she has an MFA in poetry from Warren Wilson and fellowships and awards from Breadloaf and Lower Manhattan, excuse me, Lower Manhattan Culture Council. Alicia is a plant lover, coffee drinker, and ritualist. She lives in Portland with her husband, bass player Aaron Hartman, and their two children. Welcome, Alicia Joel Rabins. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We haven't even begun yet, and we know, know we're going to have a good time. <laughs> <I know. laughs> we're already smiling. Right, exactly. You're going to have to believe us, folks, because this ain't TV. All right, so now we're going to read poems by other poets. What have you brought for us? I have a short and devastatingly beautiful poem by Jenny George, who is a poet based in Santa Fe. Um, and this is from her, her new book, which is out on Copper Canyon. It's called I Love You. Her eyes were mostly shut. She didn't speak. The sun's slow exile crossed the wall above the bed. But once, when I bent to feed her a drop of morphine from the little plastic beak, her hand shot up and gripped my arm. She looked right at me. When she said the words, it sounded like she meant, don't leave me. From the very first, we love like this, our heads turning toward whatever mothers us, our mouths urgent for the taste of our name. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I brought um, a poem from a poet I have revered for some time, the late Lucille Clifton. This is from a collection of hers called Good Woman. Um, moving from uh, the focus on myself as a mother to a focus on myself as a child, um, this one is called Poem on My 40th Birthday to My Mother Who Died Young. Well, I have almost come to the place where you fell tripping over a wire at the 44th lap, and I have decided to keep running, head up, body attentive, fingers aimed like darts at first prize, so I might not even watch out for the thin thing grabbing toward my ankles, but I'm trying for the long one, Mama, running like hell, and if I fall, I fall. Lucille Clifton, folks. Wow. All right, and now, after we hear the um, the call letters, um, those of you who've just tuned in, you missed the early stuff, which was very good, but okay, now you're going to hear some really, really great stuff. Um, this is KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. And this show is Poetry and Everything, and our guest tonight is Alicia Jo Rabins, who is now going to give us a reading, please, and thank you. Yes. So these are some poems from my brand new book, Fruit Geode, which is out from Augury Books. Um, 
This is um, this is a a um, toilet training po- poem, <laughs> <laughs> but you might not know it if you just started at the beginning. So, magic moves side to side. Gravity moves up and down. Magic side to side. I stood beneath the traffic light waiting for you. It was sheep shearing season and I, your sheep. I knew this meeting was the fulcrum, young me to old me, old me to new me. As a mother carries her young daughter to the toilet in the middle of the night to help her body learn to hold its liquids, I carry myself. I teach myself when to hold, when to spill. And this one is called Geode. It's about being young (laughs) once. Geode. The plagues we wished upon ourselves with aloe juice and cayenne, the planets we strained to reach. That was how being young tasted. Each of us, a geode, looking to be cracked and to crack each other open over and over. I am no longer young, except to those who are older, in the way that youth moves along the conveyor belt at a consistent distance. I drink water now. I try to be gentle. The years crack you open enough. And um, I learned while pregnant with one of my children, probably my first one, that the blood in your body apparently doubles <laughs> when, uh, when you're pregnant, the amount of blood in your body, which explains some of the exhaustion, I think. Um, and I really was taken by that, so I, I worked that into this poem. It's called Passenger. Seed-lined ark, mother papaya, whale belly, my little Jonah, dear passenger, As a plane, I carry you. To be a woman is to be a wall with a hole. To be a human, a hole with walls. Even the rain tastes red to you. The strawberries are over, but the sun keeps shedding. My blood doubles to keep you aloft. Um, my 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 yard in North Portland, which is a few miles from here, is um kind of a it's like <laughs> I feel like the way New York City is a character in Sex and the City. My yard, my North Portland yard, is a character in this book. Um, <laughs> and so that last one had starred my my straw had my my strawberry patch had a little cameo, and the way it it measures time every summer. And this is um, about something that happened in. Um, February in my yard so it's very different season here in Portland where everything's very dark and rainy and um, it's also my birthday season in February so I turned 40 and a friend of mine this um, wonderful woman named Anna Anna Helena um, hosted a, a ritual for me in my backyard so this is about that my new face I too was pretty once I too pulled my hair up when I walked my steps had a sharp sound like a drum kit in the hands of a jazz-trained rock drummer. When my face broke into pieces, I picked them up and carried them in my skirts across the field to you to show you my new face. Anna lights four candles above my head. Do you like it, Moon? Can I join the circle now? And one more, maybe? 
Oh, many more. Many more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not used to this kind of luxury. <laughs> Great. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, I've never been much of a, a science person. And the older I get, the more of a science person I, I become. I was one of those kind of all I care about is art in any form. <laughs> and, um, you know, I would kind of doodle poems in the borders of my biology notebook, <laughs> just trying to get through the hours. And now I'm fascinated by biology and astrophysics and, and everything. I mean, in, in college, I took physics for poets, and I was so disappointed when I found out that that was really just meant intro physics. <laughs> I thought it was really going to be for poets. Yes, what a brilliant concept. I love the title immediately. Uh, I know. Unfortunately, it was uh, it was just to get me in the door, but <laughs> I needed that credit, so it was okay. So um, this is um, a poem that has to do with um, some ev evolutionary uh, biology. The fish inside me. Once we breathed underwater, then we crawled out of the sea into this wet and dry mess. A million years learning to walk, only to turn and dive back in for you. Hmm. For you, I've left my girlish body, my girlish mind. For you, I've become ocean, become whale. Sifting plankton, for you, I glide through time with my teeth. Um, there is a Jewish legend I really love, as, as Judith mentioned, I do a lot of work on women in Jewish texts and traditions. And um, there's a character named Lilith who is not actually in the text. And I'm getting a big beaming smile. <laughs> I know her. <laughs> from my fellow <laughs> feminist over here. Um, <clears throat> and so she's apocryphal. Um, you won't find her name in the Torah. You'll actually find her name earlier. We think, as scholars think, that she grew out of Lilitu, who was a, a Sumerian, um, a Sumerian storm demon. And there, there is a word Lilit in in the um, prophets, but that seems to maybe be a bird. Um, but maybe this is a little bit of a reference to Lilith. But anyway, she was this sort of terrifying creature, and um, she really obviously stuck in the imaginations of. Um, carried kind of carried over from pre-Israelite culture into Israelite culture, and so one way she gets worked into the text is that um, the mystics said that she was the the first Eve. She was kind of a proto Eve, mm -hmm. and um, she she stood up to Adam too much, so she had to get booted out of the garden, and and Eve was created to be subservient. So. Of course, I love her, <laughs> Lilith, <laughs> and I'm definitely one of the contemporary Lilith reclaimers, of which there are many in, in the last 50 years or so. And she just gets a little mention in this poem. Um, it's not really totally about her, but um, in writing these poems about pregnancy and, and birth, I thought a lot about cycles of time and the way that things are, are passed down and what we forget and what we remember. So this is called One Last Goodbye. <clears throat> One Last Goodbye. To the one who greeted me in the mirror, who waited around the corner, who quit this and quit that, who started this and that. To the one who got everything she wanted and never once realized. Extrovert, introvert, tart body pillow of the body, no belly, small belly, cute belly. To the one who left a Sumerian storm demon named Lilitu behind. To the one who carried my babies through the darkness to the one who named them, the one who climbed the scaffolding of my own heart to offer sunflowers to the angry gods, the one who was alone. I bury those minutes in the garden as the baby grows free of his babiness, 
and walks away. Now that baby's four and I'm taking him on book tour with me <laughs> in a couple of days. Ah. <laughs> so we'll be, we'll be on the East Coast um, actually twice in the next couple of months. Um, so for those of you who are in the Northwest, you're no doubt familiar with the Cascadia subduction zone. And um, for those of you who live elsewhere and didn't see the terrifying New Yorker article a few years ago, um, we are very much overdue for a, a massive earthquake here. And so there's a lot of talk about it and a lot of preparation going on. Um, and there's a bit of that in it. Cathedral. Oh wait, can I say? I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll modify this word <laughs> a little bit. Okay, cathedral. I type the wrong year. I hold the amethyst in my mouth like a sharp purple tongue. I bleed on the chair by mistake. So much blood. I make raspberry leaf tea. I make mistakes. I get a little droopy here and there. We agree on an earthquake meetup location. We plan to stay married. I cry for the third child I don't want and won't have. So much I could not have understood before turning into an a-hole. <laughs> so much I failed to do when I rang the bell to the cathedral and left my heart on the steps wrapped in its swaddling clothes. Once we were helpless, the house slid right off its foundation. The ground became water. It buckled like your hand. We are still telling the story, even though we are temporarily strong with our electric companies and our faucets. So I think um, I'm going to do one more for this section. And it's, it's been really lovely to read these because I've actually, for my first book, I kept my music life out of my book life. And for this one, ever since I was about halfway through writing it, I decided I wanted to create a a live soundtrack to perform along with it um, because these poems to me feel like they come from a sort of otherworldly space that um, I felt like I kind of entered into during um, the whole pregnancy, birth, early childhood part of um, my life and my Definitely children's life. Definitely another space, no question. Yeah, and I found that the music I listened to changed and um, the you know there's not much punctuation in this um, it just kind of is a more vibey ambient kind of space and so I wanted to create a vibey and vibey ambient soundtrack to go with it to just kind of um, build that world around me that I felt like I was in so I play violin through electronic pedals and most of the performances I've been doing of these poems um, have had music behind them and actually earlier today I was recording it so I think I might just put it in a secret location and people can email me and I'll send them a link to uh, <laughs> to that soundtrack but it's been nice to just actually hear the, the words in silence as well. So this is the last poem in the book, and mm. it's called Letter to the Moon. Mm. True story. Dear white moon in the blue July sky, you seem to be sending me a message again, and what I hear is this will all end soon. My young son and daughter climbing into my bed begging me to show them the dinosaurs in the dinosaur book. Yellow teeth, great green bodies rearing up above the trees, terrible bat wings, glowing yellow eyes that make my children turn away and scream in terror, joyful, maniacal, then turn back to me, begging me to show them the next dinosaur, so that our morning begins in the Jurassic Age, which the book says is, quote, 
much warmer than the average temperature today, which is 57 degrees. But since it was written five years ago, that's probably <sighs> inaccurate. You know what I mean, Moon. These details asking to be savored before we melt. The grass bent down by small feet. The bees nuzzling clover. Playground shrieks. Blue plastic pool where we cool our ankles and suck on lemonade popsicles that my past self made last week. White moon in the blue July sky. Midday like a warning of an era coming to a close. Eras. Mesozoic. Mm. Anthropocene, childhood, Alicia. In your light or the sun's light that bounces through the frozen dark of space onto you, I foresee the end. Blue like a newly washed sheet spreads smooth above us, your white presence like the stain from two bodies who lay on the sheet the night before and made life between them. Oh, thank you. The moon. <laughs> I talk to her, not every night, but frequently. <laughs> yes, we do too in my family. Yes. <laughs> At least three of us do. I'm not sure about my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving us a reading. Uh, now we're going to do some talking as well. Wonderful. Um, I, have, uh, I have some questions. And... Uh, some of them are my favorites. Others I just sort of pluck out to say, oh, this one, I, I think this would be good for this poet. So we'll see. All right. Um, when did you begin to write? Do you remember the age? Do you, do you have memories of how that came about? I think I remember my first poem, which I think I wrote in kindergarten or first grade. Uh-huh. Could have been a little bit older, but it was... Um, I always... I always forget which the green is the one that's on the bottom of a traffic light, right? I forget. I always green. forget the order. Okay, yeah. green on the bottom, red on the top, yellow in the middle, and red means stop. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I should memorize that better. Um, yeah. So I actually fell in love with writing very early, and I feel like of of all the things in my life that that feels like the the one thing that probably it just it came from inside me. I don't, I don't remember. Um, I probably had a great first grade teacher, um, who, <laughs> you know, who I, I've unfortunately forgotten her introducing me to, to poetry, but, um, I started very young and I just felt very devoted to it early on. Uh -huh. Not just hearing it, not just seeing it, but writing, writing it, it. Yes. Yes. It's my first language really. Yeah. Ah, what a way to put it. I <laughs> like that. I like that. And did you think then, um, of that as being a writer? I think about fifth grade was the time that I started thinking of it in that way. Uh -huh. But I, I did not realize that poetry was a thing that was part of being a writer. Uh -huh. Even though I had written poems earlier, I think I thought poems were a, a fun little thing. And being a, and I, you know, I read a lot of, I guess what we would now call young adult, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> Little House in the Big Woods kind of. Um, and, you know, I loved Anne of Green Gates kind of amazing series and so I thought well that's what writers do is they write fiction mm -hmm. um and I ha I'm not I had this idea that a writer is someone who like wears a lot of flannel and lives in the woods I'm not <laughs> sure where I got that idea um and in high school I think was the time that I really realized that poetry was a legitimate area to concentrate and as soon as I realized that I thought oh yeah that's I don't want to have to make a plot <laughs> I just want to like ruminate you know uh -huh. yeah <laughs> And make up stuff exactly just just like make make some beauty without needing a through line <laughs> uh, without a through line good 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 um 
in your family, are there other people who write or practice other arts of any sort? Yeah, my grandparents were um, very creative, ranging from the sort of you know kind of super crafty like my my grand one of my grandfathers would lived in Florida and would just gather sea glass at the shore and then glue mm. it on every surface in the house. It was that kind <laughs> of like human decorating impulse. Uh-huh. Um, and my grandmother, has, you know, in that couple, um, I don't know, she always wore like 10 necklaces and they were always just this kind of amazing combination of patterns. Um, so that that was them. And then my uh, maternal grandfather was a comic book artist named ah. Dick Briefer who drew the the Frankenstein comic books. Oh my goodness. So he was a professional artist. He grew up in New York and went to the Art Students League and really um was a career artist. Um and my grandmother on that side um grew up studying she went to Brooklyn College and studied English. So she really loved literature even though I'm not sure that that she wrote. So there was a lot of that and then my my parents um, really love art and didn't really practice it. Although my dad's a really amazing nonfiction writer, and he was—he's a geriatric psychiatrist now retired. So he wrote amazing uh, books, kind of helping caregivers that I know mm-hmm. changed, really helped change people's lives. Um, so he's a great writer, but not—you know—not a creative writer in that way. Um, and my two sisters are both extremely creative, and we all—it all kind of exploded again. Uh-huh. <laughs> So um, they're they're both brilliant artists. Uh So these people that you've just named, they're not the sort of folks who are going to say, what are you doing when you began to write? No, I like won the family lottery. I really did. (laughs) I just, someone up there was looking out for me. I was like, these people will be a really good match for her. For for this little one. No, the thing I did that shocked my family was go to Jerusalem and start studying Torah at 21. That was very disturbing Uh (laughs) for a while because I grew up up in a secular family. They're like, what? The Uh art was fine. The religiousness was, um, until they saw that I was still going to be me and I wasn't going to, you know, go off the deep end and stop talking to them or Uh something. Then they were fine again. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And also that... And I say this because, as I said, I was in your audience. They soon learned that these things were not separate. Exactly. For you. Exactly. That it was all of one piece in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just incredibly supportive. And so, you know, I think they were kind of, as I probably would have been, a little anxious that I was going off off some, <laughs> off some track in some ways. But <laughs> like you just said, it, it became clear that it was just part of my track. Yeah. Um, this is a very... Um, different sort of question um what do you what would you say you get from writing poetry or any of the work that you know playing the violin Mm -hmm. um any of what you do and i know you integrate these things as we were just saying Mm -hmm. what does that give you it gives me so much (laughs) i'm so grateful for it Uh, um you know i would say each art form fulfills a different need for me um or if or maybe fulfills the same need in a different way so poetry specifically um i I feel like my brain is like a rodent's teeth where it just keeps growing and you know how rodents will starve to death if they don't like gnaw on things to dull their teeth and make them smaller so that poetry to me feels like just a way to keep things manageable (laughs) if i'm not writing almost every day um it's just there's just too much emotion and too much kind of perception. It's kind of my my release valve for just dealing with being a human, which to me is often the experience of being like just a highly imp- impressionable um, kind of like thinly stretched membrane. <laughs> and all this information is just passing through all the time. 
Um, and so it's it's really a, a lifesaver to me to just be able be able to write and kind of let let some process that and and let it go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so it <laughs> it's like uh, not so much a medicine as a or maybe it is. It a is kind a medicine. medicine. Yes. 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 I'm, I'm, it's I, a medicine. It's is medicine. medicine the same way exercise is medicine. You know. It's yes. yes. Yeah. Definitely. It's not healing necessarily healing a wound. It's just kind of it's healthy for me. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the way I think about something like not exactly, but something like what you just described is this: that when um, I'm in the head is going to explode situation, um, and I reach for writing implements, machinery, or simply the the clipboard and the paper and the pencil or whatever, and what I feel is happening is that it is literally moving down out of my head, through my neck, shoulders, down through the arm and into the hand, mm, which yeah. then is putting it onto either a keyboard or paper, and it's pulling it out of me. Absolutely. And it's like a yeah. lightning rod or a reverse lightning rod or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's an amazing it is literal I am amazed by the fact that that's how it works. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thank you for <laughs> considering that one. Um, particularly since uh, one of the words that you use when you talk about yourself is ritualist, um, one, another question that I love asking is, do you have a ritual, <laughs> literally, or a habit or a practice um, that you use before you start writing? Can you, and is it something you're willing to talk about so for some people it's like well, I don't talk about that no so. that's not my case okay um, I don't you know I would say the closest thing I have to a ritual for writing is going to a cafe and buying a cafe au lait <laughs> that's I mean my my dream writing space is is a cafe with a little table and just you know not the music's like not too loud and not too quiet and there's a bunch of people talking around me and it just becomes this kind of like buzz in the background and mm-hmm. somehow that is my most focused that plus the caffeine <laughs> which is uh, also yes. in my bio let's not forget uh, that yes um, but that that's really my dream writing space but I am I am an inveterate multitasker it's just the way my brain works and so actually I, I also really love writing in the kind of interstices of life so between between things I'll just kind of often write a draft on an email to myself on my phone or something like that so mm-hmm. um, I know some people have much more involved writing practices and when I'm editing I need more time if I'm going to edit especially a longer length like I'm, I'm working on a memoir right now and to edit that I need like a half a day but because um, and, and editing a book of poetry is a similar thing but if I'm editing a single poem or just generating it can be a pretty quick mm-hmm. process for me sure Okay. Um, do you think um, and or behave um, differently when you're working in the different arenas, um, writing, music, um, ritual, and some of the teaching that goes with your ritual work? Um, is that all of a piece in terms of um, the here I am, so to speak, you know, the presentation of self mm-hmm. in that? or different I think they bring out different you know different nuances in me for sure but I do feel that kind of integration and authenticity has always been really important to me and so I don't think I ever do anything in one role 
that I couldn't see myself doing in any of the other roles, but I might kind of slightly face a different, I mean, if I'm officiating a bat mitzvah, um, I'll have a slightly different kind of, a pretty different, I think, in some ways persona than if I'm doing a poetry reading. But I also do see making art and presenting art as a form of priestessing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see facilitating ritual as a form of creativity. So in some ways, I think it's really always just me showing up. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's going to happen now, whatever it yeah. in the moment yeah. is called for. Yeah. I like to cover my head with a scarf when I'm doing it. That's the biggest difference when I'm doing a religious or spiritual uh-huh. ritual. That kind of, that's that uh-huh. that marks it. But that's really the uh-huh. main difference. Uh-huh. Yeah. Costume is often yeah. important in yes. ritual. Yes, it yeah. is. And and as from my point of view, that's a good thing. Um, Me too. All right. So are there um, subjects, topics, themes that you particularly want to write about that you know oh, I want to do this, um, that you either have or are, you're planning to do? Does, is that how it works for you? You mean like right now or in general? In general and right now. <laughs> um, I I think my process is slightly changing as I grow into myself. I mean, I think I, I've been kind of professionally making art, I guess, for about 20 years. And for the first 10 or 15 I I was really led by opportunities Uh I was I mean I was always like going to the next gig or you know whatever it seemed like could help me pay the rent and build community and you know just kind of Mm -hmm. respond and I think that's a young way to live responding to what was in front of me and it worked and it was great Um, and now um, I think you know I'm 41 now I think in my mid-30s especially having kids which happened then I started to realize that I was both ready to kind of drive the boat more um, and then I needed to because I couldn't be as responsive to the outside world because I had more responsibilities at home Um, and 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 I I think that kind of coincided with my having a more intentional plan about what I would like to explore next Mm -hmm. so my first book of poetry was actually it's actually poems that I had written over 18 years that I edited into a single book and my obsessions are pretty consistent so they definitely (laughs) spoke to each other um, very easily but this book is um, Fruit Geode my new book is very much about a subject and about a time of life which is um, different from my first book which was more about like the idea of inquiry and divinity Mm -hmm. in general Um, and so specifically right now um there's a few projects or I, you know, there's thing, there's always kind of the close ones. So I'm, I'm making the Cottage for Madoff uh, stage show into a film. Ah, with good a, idea. <laughs> thank you. So it's partially the idea of actually my director, whose name is Alicia J. Rose, who's a great <laughs> Portland director who happens to share my initials, which is crazy. Yes. And I kind of brought her on to consult about documenting it. And she said, why don't we just make it into its own movie? It's like, oh, it's so right. That's so right. So that is a huge, you know, it's kind of the material is fairly known but tr- to me but but translating it into a new form is extremely unknown to me definitely um, so different that's that's something that I'm really excited about just working in film mm-hmm. um, and then in terms of the poems that I'm writing right now I'm 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 really interested in astrophysics. <laughs> I listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast a lot, <laughs> and I'm I'm just interested in like the the way that that kind of thought is kind of inherently poetic, um, and and what happens when you try to combine it with poetry. So I, it's not like I sit down and think I'm going to write an astrophysics poem now, but um, I've been writing a lot that 
in that vein. And I also found myself writing a series about bread, different breads for some reason. Mm. So, A different kind of science. Yeah, exactly. It might, might be one project, it might be two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I am writing a spiritual memoir. So that's kind of my first foray into um, long-form nonfiction. Uh-huh. And that's a huge new terrifying and exhilarating adventure so I'm kind of working on my second revision of that right now almost as different as film it is so different yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah all right thank you um we'll skip this one wait a minute <laughs> I'm checking the, the time and I don't want to you know otherwise I would ask everybody everything if we had just endless time um given that you do practice um, more than one art. Um, do you think that they are similar? Do you think, do you think about um, playing the violin as having similar needs and moves and uh, on your part as writing poems? You're nodding yes. Okay. Oh, no, I'm, that's my listening nod. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, all right. Okay. Um, what do you think? What do I think? I have a... I have a I, <laughs> I'm not a particularly sporty person, but um, <laughs> the analogy that always comes to mind when I, I like to think about this question, and when I think about it, I think about um, athletes and athletes who play more than one sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, it's a, you know, they're highly specialized in terms of, you know, just because you're a marathon, you know, medalist doesn't mean you're going to be anchor. It's a completely different skill set. And yet, um, the facility with your body, the experience of training. Um, Definitely great analogy. I love it. So that, that's, how I, that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, even though you might be able, as a marathoner, to uh, play soccer with some facility, that doesn't mean you're going to be the same in terms of agility, ability, success, whatever you want to call it, in both, but they do either come from the same place or feed on each other or both, yeah? Yeah, I, and I think if you, I mean, I, another thing that I like <laughs> like to think about is um, how, you know, if the Renaissance kind of divided everything into disciplines and, and categories as a way of um, separating parts of life and human inquiry out um, to kind of clarify um you know, what is science and what is religion and, you know, (laughs) separating that out and what is, you know, what is song and what is poem, separating that out. I mean, I don't know if that really happened in the Renaissance or later, but I think, I think it all kind of coincided. So what I, I tend to think of a kind of primordial, a kind of primordial practices of like practices of, of physical striving and exertion and practices of creation and, and generate generativeness, um, of, of the mind and of like the um, objects in the world. So I think that, you know, if you go back to, there's some like or ancestor <laughs> of, of creativity um, and of, of making essentially um, where, you know, if you go back there, of course, like, like the, a poem and a violin sonata and my grandfather's decorated lamp with sea glass that he found are all just, you know, the human impulse to embellish and make beauty and make sense and make order out of the world. Um, and and so I, I really do see them as as having this common ancestor. And then and then over that over time they have been separated out, and that's both beautiful because the skill can be refined in each one, and there's can be something limiting about that if we think. I am a poet and I work in words and I, I can't, you know, think 
beyond that or I I am not an artist I am just someone who decorates things with glass you know I mean (laughs) I kind of look critically on both of both of those ways of of thinking because I think there's a deeper creativity that that can be tapped into yeah but they apply an enormous constraint Mm -hmm. thinking like that or being talked to like that right right and yet there's something so beautiful about you know getting in the deep trenches of craft I mean like to to learn like what is assonance and what do line breaks do and that is that is like something that you can only learn after a while of already having messed around with poetry and then mm. that's a beautiful thing so I think holding both of them is as usual my goal <laughs> <laughs> let's do all of it yes yes okay um here's a and now for something completely different um kind of question do you hear from your audiences people who listen to you make music people who um, read your work or hear you perform your work do they contact you or do they come up to you afterwards what is that like for you and what do you think that's about what just talk a bit about that please I mean I just feel like so grateful anytime anyone takes in something I've created and finds it meaningful and if they tell that to me that's amazing to me that's even more amazing for me because then I get to know that that happened <laughs> otherwise I'm like just hoping that that happened mm-hmm. um I, it's 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 the other it's the other I mean I create because I have to but um I also create kind of in the way that you know I, I do rituals in my own life because I have to but that's really only I mean it helps me get through the day but it's really only half half of the half of the practice and the other half of the practice is that that cycle where it goes into someone else and comes back or doesn't always come back or where you know it's building community whether or not I'm actually seeing that happen and I've been on the receiving end of that so many countless times of being touched by other people's work and I'm actually too shy uh, to go I, I become like a completely frozen freak of nature when I'm like really moved by someone's performance I I cannot bring myself to go up and say anything to them so I I never expect that from people but I'm I'm just so touched when it happens it feels like closing a certain circle Uh and I should probably work up the courage to do it myself well also there are other ways I'm a big fan of fan mail yes I love to send fan mail and it isn't like oh I thought of that and now I'm gonna do it the impulse comes and I just scribble it out or yes. send it by email or whatever because some because of what you're talking about. Something has come into me that I am grateful for and I'm I want to say to the person who gave me that, You did this. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Yes. Hopefully in a better language when you No, know. you know, I think I need to work on that. I'm gonna take that away from this. I, I need to I need to be I need to directly thank some of the people who are, you know, yeah. laboring to create this beauty that I then get to take yeah. on. And yeah. it's a great pleasure to say mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um and now I'm and here's a segue. Saying thank you in different languages. Um um, I suspect, given um, your ritual work, that you have studied, spoken, read languages other than American English. Um, and what relationship do you think that that experience might have um, with the music, the poetry, whatever else you're doing? The fact that it's not all in that one sound, that mm-hmm. one set of words. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think of music as a language and um, I unfortunately am one of those Americans who grew up speaking only English but I 
I did learn some French in high school, and then I really wanted to learn Spanish, so I, I took it upon myself to learn that in my 20s, and I traveled to Guatemala a number of times, and um, um, and, and actually before that w- was this period that I mentioned before when I became deeply interested in Judaism and went to yeshiva in Jerusalem. And so there, uh, I never really got that good at spoken Hebrew, <laughs> but I really immersed myself in biblical Hebrew and Talmudic Aramaic. And it really did, I mean, you know, I was very young and still very impressionable um, in terms of the work that I was creating. And I, and I had also just finished studying poetry for four years in college. And so mm. I was really primed to soak up these texts. And um, I think that that tremendously influenced just kind of spending two years immersed. It was a huge blessing to spend two years immersed in this wisdom literature, much of which had been passed down orally. And because of that, it has you know, what I like to think of as the um, quality of stones that have been washed clean over time. So there's nothing mm-hmm. extraneous. It's just these little kind of wisdom stones that were pithy and beautiful and uh <laughs> grammatically interesting enough to get <laughs> passed down for decades and decades and decades before they were even written down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of phrasing and quality of that language is, is a huge influence on me. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm one who also thinks that have, and not that we all have to go out and study six languages, but that just hearing the other way or an other way inside of ourselves while we're working in our own language, whatever it is, um, makes different stuff happen on the page, on the screen. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I love, like, I love Lorca and I love Neruda. And ah. so, I, you know, I do try to read read some poetry in, in Spanish for exactly the same reasons that you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have occasionally... Um, written uh, poems in English that have Spanish, because that was the language that I studied, Mm -hmm. um, that have Spanish words, phrases, and not just a pop-in, but where the poem itself is about some relationship between Mm -hmm. the English and the Spanish. And it is, um, first of all, it's really exciting, but also it's... um, it comes into the body in Mm -hmm. a different way, just like it came out of the body in a different way. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure this is true with any sets of languages, not just English and Spanish. Um, okay, I'm checking our time. We're all right for a little while longer. Um, you mentioned, uh, you were talking for a little while about editing. Do you think of um, revision, editing, other such terms, as part of what we call the creation of the piece, again, whether it's music or poetry, whatever it is, um, or as a separate task in a way? Um, I think of it as a separate task, which is part of the creation of the piece. (laughs) But I definitely, it's like phase one is generation for me, which means making something and just banishing my, my critical impulse out the door like I, I don't I don't care how bad it is I don't I'm, I'm just looking for the next thing and I know that I might need to write 20 terrible lines to get to the next good one and if I get all tied up in knots about the 20 terrible lines I'll never get to the next good one and so I really use a lot of um, stream of consciousness um, and just kind of free I feel a lot of freedom in that generative phase and then my highly overactive critical impulse <laughs> is welcomed in for the second part where I just basically, as if a stranger wrote the first part, edit it. 
in in any of the forms that I work in. And I, I have always my I've always had this ability to look at something that I wrote pretty dispassionately. Um, I just I'm I so want it to be the best that it can be that it's more painful to me to have a bad line that I was attached to in there than to lose a line that I was attached to. <laughs> so I'm always very ready to to strip stuff away. Yeah. Grace Paley said that one of the what she called lies of writing is to keep the the line that you love. And sometimes that's just not the best idea you've ever had. Yeah. I mean, that's my addition. Grace said the thing about the line that you love. Yeah. You you write stuff and then um, and you you think it's pretty good, then you come back to it and you think maybe not totally yeah almost every poem I write I like write what I think is like the most perfect ending for that poem that could possibly be written (laughs) and then I know I even know when I'm writing it that like at this point I've been doing it for long enough that like the next week I will come and chop that off (laughs) because that's me like putting a bow on it and nobody Uh, needs a bow in the end (laughs) that's right that's right yeah I like the thing about the bow yeah and and the time span too really matters for me Um, I'll write something I'll work on it I'll even revise and then I put it away for a bit. A bit could be a day, a bit could be a week. I look at it and I think, what was I thinking? Totally. What? What? <laughs> I don't, you know, we're going to work on this a little more differently and extensively. And don't you think that's psychologically healthy to, to oh, just yeah. kind of have that practice in general? Because then you can apply it to, you can kind of laugh at things that you did yesterday too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not just things you wrote. <laughs> yes, I do think it's healthy. Um, sometimes... Sometimes it doesn't work that way, <laughs> <laughs> and that is true. less healthy. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, okay. Um, do you think about your audience, your listeners, your readers, while you are either practicing the violin or writing? Like in this process that we were just talking about, do you think about people reading it? Do you think about people listening to you perform it? Or are you thinking about the stuff we were just talking about exclusively? How's that work for you? Um, I would say in the in that first generative phase, I'm not even thinking about myself reading it. So I'm certainly not, not allowing myself to think about anyone else. Um, and then in the editing phase, I don't know how to explain it. It's almost as if I become... I'm trying to craft an experience and I guess it's for other people because I don't sit around reading my own work (laughs) but it feels like it's for the editor in me or whoever it is in me that wants to make this poem right Um, so I don't know it it, it feels like I'm I feel like when I you know when I think about the idea of writing for other people there's it has this touch of like pandering or something. Um, like I'm not writing to please anyone else, but I am writing to give aesthetic pleasure. And so if I feel like something, I'm always trying to find the right um, balance between being too obtuse and too obvious. Like I really like puzzles. I like including something that people can kind of chew over and figure out in, in, in most of my poems. Um, or the, a line that will reveal itself in the next line. You, you can't quite tell what it means until the next line. So I think I think probably in the editing phase, what's really happening is I am totally thinking about the audience. I just don't uh-huh. think it in the, in that term. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think if we thought about the audience in the very beginning, we'd just be dead in our tracks. We just 
what do you do then? Yeah. And when I say audience, I mean like my dream ideal audience. Like I know <laughs> that like even my, my parents don't really read poetry. I mean, they do to mine, I guess, to be supportive. But, <laughs> you know, when I mean, I, I think that's why I think it's kind of it's the audience inside me that I'm really writing for. Um, although I do deeply care whether it touches other people. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I've thought about for years and many people talk about and have asked me about is this, um, the fact of audience. There are people who write privately. We even have the word journaling. It's a verb. Um, It's not just the book, the journal itself. Um, I'm I'm actually not a journaler, although when I travel, I definitely journal. Um, And sometimes there's this suggestion that it's egotistical to be writing for other people but there's something in it uh, in the act of doing it not that I'm thinking this but that I've come to understand over time is part of it is that I am writing this and I am going to perform it and of course I want people to read it in a book or magazine and or be in the room with me and be my audience and have that exchange with me I want that. And it's, I really don't think, I've examined this so many hmm. times, I don't think this is about ego. I think this is part of the art. Is that the kind of thing you're Absolutely, 100%. Yes, yeah. 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 It's not a solitary thing. It's about the exchange. Partly. Yeah. And I mean, I think if I were on a desert island, I'd still do it. (laughs) (laughs) But but the exchange is part of that cycle for me. Yeah. Oh, I like that desert island line because as soon as you said it, I thought, oh, she's right. I would. I would. would But you're right. I mean, in its in its most just like I like cooking for people. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd rather cook dinner for 10 people than dinner for myself. I just would. And it's I'm not like an amazing cook. I'm just like a decent home cook. But it's joyful to bring something into the world and share it with people i'll say (laughs) i'll say okay um here are what i think of as my most um uh sort of worker-like questions literally what are you reading now i i had the um, amazing privilege of um going to Breadloaf Writers Conference this summer and I'm slowly working my way through the books of my incredible compatriots there who were um, I was a fellow there and so all of the other fellows have books Mm -hmm. Um, and so right now I am reading a book called Love and Death in the Sunshine State by Cutter Wood and I'm reading um, I just read a book called The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan and one called River of Stars by Vanessa Waugh. And um, next, oh, and I'm also reading um, Like a Mother, which is a book about pregnancy and kind of science and kind of being critical about how people treat pregnant women by Angela Garbus. And actually, I'm going to get to be in conversation with her at um, Portland Book Festival on November 10th. Oh, what a 10th. cool idea. So, so hers is um, nonfiction It's prose. nonfiction, and it's based on this article she wrote for the, or it grows out of an article she wrote for The Stranger in Seattle that became the most widely read Stranger article in the history that was about the amazing properties of breast milk. 
Well, you, I am surprised. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I personally loved breastfeeding. Yeah. But it never occurred to me that that would be a hot topic. Yeah. And I guess <laughs> scientists still don't understand. It seems that the makeup of the milk actually changes every day according to the baby's developmental. Like they're finding these incredible things just on the cutting edge of science. So I was just thinking about it was made of what I eat. And I yeah. have to think about that. Yeah. I was not doing science yeah. per se. Okay. And the second and last question, the last question of the interview and the second of that set I referred to, what are you working on now give us a minute or so on that yeah well I um I sort of already said it but I'd love to say it again because <laughs> I'm in love with it I'm so grateful to be doing what I'm doing um I'm making uh, a film with Alicia J Rose the director uh called A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff and so we are currently planning production for um probably Portland this winter and we just made a little uh, she made a three minute concept trailer of footage that we filmed in New York in an empty kind of abandoned office on Wall Street last June so that was super fun and I am working on a spiritual memoir about growing up secular Jewish and um, getting very deep into religious Judaism in my very early 20s and then kind of finding my way to uh, a center and an integrated life and, and, and what it's like to be an artist kind of in these three versions of life, an artist growing up in the suburbs of Baltimore in a very secular, non-Jewish life, um, and then an artist in yeshiva in Jerusalem, <laughs> and then an artist uh, back in America, um, a feminist and an artist, and kind of integrating that into a contemporary spirituality that really aligns with, with what I believe. And moves through all of the arts that Absolutely. you practice. All right. Well, thank you very much indeed for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions and giving poetry all this beautiful attention. Oh, well, we're both uh, thanking each other, and <laughs> now it's you're welcome, you're welcome. <laughs> all right. So um, this is it, folks. Next month's Poetry and Everything will first air on November 6th. Excuse, yes, November 26th. After that, just like this show, it'll be available on the net anytime, all the time. Thanks for listening. Remember, support your local independent bookstores, independent reading series, and independent radio. Good night. KBU Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor Alibri Hes the Milagro Theater and Yodide Los Muertos theater production running weekly on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays until November 11th at the Milagro Theater in Portland. Alebrijes is a family-friendly production of real-life artist and Alebrijes creator Pedro Linares delves into his world and fictionalizes it to create this Dia de los Muertos story. Full of mythical creatures, psychedelic jungles, song, dance, and larger-than-life puppetry. Again, that's Alebrijes, the Milagro Theater annual Dide Los Muertos theater production running weekly on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sundays until November 11th at the Milagro Theater, 525 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Sister Mary Project on Saturday, November 3rd at the Claygate Estate Vineyard in Newburgh, Oregon. 
The Sister Mary Project is an event to raise awareness for multiple sclerosis and to recognize local caregivers. The Sister Mary Project will perform and there will be information, beverages, and snacks Saturday, November 3rd. Again, that's the Sister Mary Project on Saturday, November 3rd at the Claygate Estate Vineyard, 17205 Northeast Dop Road in Newburgh, Oregon. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good evening, and welcome to the Holy Crowley Hour, the 80th anniversary of the original radio broadcast of War of the Worlds edition. For those of you who haven't succumbed to the Martian attack yet, you might be asking yourself, what's the Holy Crowley Hour? Well, sometime several years ago, a cable talk show caller made an accusation. She claimed that there were several late-night DJs at the station who belonged to an Aleister Crowley cult. Alistair Crowley, for those of you who don't know, was a remarkable Englishman who lived from 1875 to 1947. He founded the religion of Thelema and styled himself a prophet, leading humanity into a new age 